Good morning again. We are in the last Sunday of this introductory series that we're doing on loving our neighbors. Um, and then after that, we've mastered it. So <laughs> now actually, then we're going to launch into uh, a series that may take us all the way to Easter that's going to be in Genesis. It'll be an interesting place to go for talking about loving your neighbors. Hopefully that will make more sense by the time I'm done with that, this sermon. So what we've been doing is we've been, we as a church are embracing this calling to love our neighbors. We talked in our Sunday school class this morning about how that is the mission of the church. And as you see that as the mission of the church more broadly, then it changes the way you view um, who, who accomplishes the mission of the church, where is the mission of the church accomplished, and it, it really is convicting as we realize that the mission of God actually happens in the way I treat the people that live next door to me, not just whether I come here on Sunday mornings or those kinds of things. It puts it on, on each of us. And so as we've been going through this series, we've been looking at this passage in Luke 10 where Jesus really spends the most time talking about the command to love your neighbor. And two weeks ago, we talked about the definition of a neighbor in this passage. And what we found is that Jesus' definition of a neighbor is no different than Webster's definition of a neighbor. A neighbor is someone who is near you. And so what we're being challenged to do when we're told to love our neighbor is basically love whoever God brings into your sphere. What we tend to do is we tend to want to specialize, which is good. It is good for us to specialize in those people that we are particularly enabled to reach, that we have a particular passion for. You know, if you have a passion for foreign missions, you have a passion for homeless ministries, things like that, and we should pursue those. Those come from God. Those are not the same as loving the people that God has put near you, and so you still need to love whoever God puts in your, uh, around you, whether it's your neighbors uh, who live near you, the people who work with you, the people that you go to school with. Um, that's the calling, the command that we have from God. Last week, we dug into what it means to love your neighbor, which is what Jesus is more interested in when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And we talked about the fact that we often get pulled in two different directions that both lead to us being ineffective in what we're doing. So the one direction we get pulled in is we minimize loving your neighbor to basically be like getting along with your neighbor. That's kind of the way our culture defines a good neighbor is you wouldn't know they were there. Right? Like, like they don't get in the way. They don't do anything loud. You, you have no reason to dislike them. Probably don't have a reason to like them either. But the most important thing is you don't have a reason not to you don't have a reason to dislike them. That's not loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor is not not doing something. Loving your neighbor is doing something. But the other end of that spectrum is we may also feel pulled into saying, thinking that loving your neighbor means you have to do everything for everybody and solve all their problems all the time and essentially become their savior. And no one can do that. And so then if, we set a, if you set a goal that it's impossible to achieve, usually what ends up happening is you stop trying. When you, when you pick a, a goal like that. And so what we talked about was the fact that loving your neighbor is not being a savior, and it's not just smiling and waving at your neighbors, but it is intentionally being compassionate. It is being intentional about noticing others around you, about caring about what's going on in their lives, about uh, helping as you're able, and, and about being intentional about that. Because usually compassion is something that we just re we feel it and we react when we feel it. We talked, I think I mentioned how Charlie, my daughter, my middle daughter, has a uh, middle child, oldest daughter. I'm, I'm new to having three kids. Um, <laughs> second child, Charlie, 
is starting to learn that she has a particular look that will get compassion out of me. And if she uses that look, I'm more likely to respond. Being intentionally compassionate means that I'm compassionate even regardless of whether that particular look is being used. That the, the desire to be compassionate comes from me. Today, we're going to talk about the, the last aspect of this, which is taken for granted by the people in the conversation, but is often misunderstood by us, which is why loving your neighbor is so important. Why, why is it a command? Why is it part of the path to eternal life? And so in order to work our way into that conversation, I'm going to remind, or into that point, I'm going to remind us of the conversation that sparks this whole thing. So a religious lawyer, an expert in the law, stands up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now at this point in the story, Jesus and the lawyer have reached an agreement. They are on the same page. That loving God and loving your neighbor, the person next to you, are essential to eternal life. And that's, they reach that agreement without any debate. And so we're kind of left out of why they agree on that especially as we get into debates on our own about what you have to do, what's the bare minimum to get eternal life, and we see it as this checklist that you have to do that God decided on some checklist, and now we have to, uh, that is ultimately arbitrary. It's just whatever God decided to set as the instructions, these are the boxes that you have to check. That's not the way, the way they're approaching the question. So ultimately what we want to talk about is why is loving your neighbor essential to eternal life? Is it because God just picked, you know, I think out of the 613 rules, this one and this one, they're essential. Why is this essential? And I'll remind you what we talked about two weeks ago, that when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That, that phrase, eternal life, is not simply a, an, a quantity of life. It is a kind of life. It is a quality of life. And the, the sense is not that God has put conditions on, on living forever, but that there are only certain kinds of life that can last forever. And so the question is, what kind of life lasts forever? What, what does it look like to live the kind of life that lasts forever? And what Jesus and the lawyer and God have all said is that the essence of that is loving God and loving your neighbor. And they didn't pull this out of thin air. Jesus did not invent the command to love your neighbor. It came from the law of Moses in Leviticus 19. It says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, a lot of time, for a lot of us, that doesn't solve the question because it just means that instead of looking at the two conditions that God has put on eternal life, that's just a list of rules that God picked, We've just pushed the question back into this list of 613 rules that he gave the Israelites that they had to keep in order to satisfy him and get into heaven. That's how we often talk about the law of Moses, but that's not what the law of Moses is. Now, if you haven't been with us uh, long enough to have been part of the... There's two series where we really talked about the meaning and the purpose of the law of Moses. One of them is terms and conditions, and the other one is the plan, and you can find those both on our website. But the Cliff Notes version of what we said about the law is this. The point of the law of Moses is not to give you the moral law of right and wrong. Because there are some things in there that are moral laws, like don't murder. 
But I would like to think that we would know not to murder, even if it wasn't in the law of Moses, right? Like, we didn't need the law of Moses to tell us murder is bad. But there's also rules in there, like, don't shave your temples, and don't mix different types of fabric, and don't, like, three times it says, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Like, that's a really important thing in the law of Moses. Those are not necessarily moral issues. It's not, it's not clear what, uh, how they would be. But what they are is they're part of a set of instructions that were given to the people of Israel in order to accomplish the mission God had give them, given them. So when they say these are the two key laws that sum up the law and the prophets, what they're saying is that loving God and loving your neighbor, they summarize the mission instructions that God's people have been given. Because God called his people for a specific purpose, and the law of Moses was the instructions for how Israel is supposed to carry out that purpose. So the command to love your neighbor is central to God's mission for his people. That's how we should look at it. It is essential for the mission that God has for his people. Because you've got to remember, following Jesus means you're following him somewhere. Jesus has an agenda. He has a goal. He's accomplishing something. And to follow him is to be part of that mission. So the question then is, what is the mission of God's people? Well, if you want to know the mission of God's people, the easiest place to look is the founding of God's people. And this is what brings us back to Genesis. Genesis 12, God picks one family out of all the families on earth, and he calls them to a particular mission. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, the mission that God is calling Abram to is to be a conduit for, his bless, for God's blessing. He's saying, I want you to go over there, and in the process, I'm going to use you to bless people. And the people that join with you are blessed. The people who oppose you, I'm going to oppose them. I'm going to curse them so they can't stop the plan of blessing people. So God sent Abram to Canaan to bring blessing to the world. The people immediately around him and then ultimately as his family grows and as God's plan unfolds to the whole world. So the mission of God's people is to restore his blessing to the world. That's what he made them for. Or that's what he called God's people for. And that's why uh, next week we're going to start a study of uh, the patriarchs. We're going to look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's sons because they were the first people to be called to love their neighbors. And they had various adventures and misadventures in trying to accomplish that. But the question then that we would ask is, well, but what's this blessing? What, what is the blessing that's being restored? Well, we're doing things backwards because that mention of the blessing is a callback from Genesis 12 all the way back to Genesis 1, where there's a very important moment as God is creating everything where he, he offers a blessing. So God has created the whole world, all the animals, all the plants. It's all complete except for the last missing element. God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every creature that moves on the ground. So the last thing that God created to make his creation complete was humanity. And he made them for a particular function to rule over the world on his behalf. Right? That is their job. They have been delegated authority over God's earth so that it can not just be a, a terrarium or just be some kind of robotic toy that he plays with like clockwork, but it can actually be shaped and changed and can respond to God. And notice that the call is, is for humanity. It says he created them in his image. It even emphasizes male and female. Humanity rules on his behalf and reflects his image. And that's the way it was designed. So ultimately, God's blessing is the fruitful, harmonious reign of humanity on earth. I'm listening through the Chronicles of Narnia uh, while, I, while I run, and there's a place in Prince Caspian where I think it's a badger says, uh, Narnia was never right except when a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve was on the throne. And that's, that's, that's actually... A, a very powerful statement that the earth is not right unless humanity is ruling well. And unfortunately, we don't rule well. And that blessing got distorted and destroyed by Genesis 3. And God, the story of the Bible is God restoring that blessing to the world. And that's what the law of Moses is supposed to help Israel to do. They, they are supposed to create a place where God's will is done, where humanity reigns together harmoniously in the way that God always wanted them to. And that's why Leviticus 19, that tells us to love our neighbor, it has a whole bunch of instructions in there. For instance, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is called the holiness code. And notice that it, it covers such a wide range of things, the kinds of things that we pass laws about, like fraud, but also things like gossiping. Um, there's laws about being kind to the disabled. Like there's this whole range of behaviors that are covered just in that one passage because the instructions of the law of Moses are about how they, in their particular time and place, can create a community that lives in harmony, that lives according to God's design, that loves him and loves their neighbors. That's why it, it culminates in the command to love your neighbor. And, and when they say that all the law is summarized by loving God and loving your neighbor, they're saying that loving God and loving your neighbor is the goal of all of those laws. But this is not simply so that the Israelites can create the holy huddle where all the godly people hang out together and enjoy the, the blessing and they don't share it with anyone. Remember, they're supposed to bless the world. And so the idea is that as they interact with other nations and as other people come to Israel, they will experience that blessing. That's why chapter 19 also says, 
When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing amongst you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He explicitly says, love, your, love the foreigners among you, because it is meant to be a blessing that is shared. That's the goal of the law of Moses, the mission of God's people, is to live out his design and share his, the blessing with the world. So God restores his blessing by commanding his people to love their neighbors. But there's a problem. And the problem is always us. (laughs) Because the Israelites aren't any better at doing this than anybody else. And really all they do is prove to us that without some help, we can't live out God's blessing. And that's where Jesus comes in. We've looked at this passage a couple of times in the last few weeks. In Titus 2, Paul says this, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So, human beings can't simply be told to love our neighbors and carry through on it. We're too selfish for that. We're too weak for that. But Jesus came and he paid the price for our selfishness. He died for us God raised him from the dead, and he made that life and that transformation, that life and the transformation that comes with it available to us so that we can actually be people who fulfill the design of God. Jesus came to create a people capable of fulfilling this mission. And the reason why I say all of this is because I think it's important for us to understand the reasoning behind the command. Because it should be enough for us, shouldn't it? Why do we love our neighbor? God said so. Right? I'm, we're in this battle with James right now of where he wants to get the logic, the reasoning behind every single thing we tell him. And at a certain point, I have to say, James, just do it because I said so. Don't have the time to explain it to you. You're not going to understand. You've got to do it, Right? But, so that should be enough for us that God's told us to. But, there is a sense in which we can fulfill the command best if we understand the reason behind it. That we can be intentional about how we're loving our neighbors if we know what the goal is. And the goal isn't to tick a box. The goal is to accomplish a mission. The goal is to create a space or have God use us to create a space in which His design is being lived out so that God saves you so that where you are, as you fulfill his vision, as you follow his will, and as you love your neighbor, the place where you are is a place where God's will is done. It's where God is obeyed. It's where God is king. It's the kingdom of God where you are. And God saves you to create a pocket of his kingdom wherever you go. And that's the mission. Sometimes we get into this sense, uh, we, we narrow down the goal of loving our neighbors to something smaller like evangelism. Evangelism is important. It's important for us to share the love of Jesus with everyone. We want everyone to know who Jesus is. But the job doesn't end once they've, once they've gotten baptized. It doesn't end once they've joined a church. It doesn't end when they join someone else's church. Right? Like loving our neighbors is about, creating, is about living out God's rule on earth and living out the blessing that God has for us. And that can absolutely be transformational. And it has been. So what I want to do with the rest of this sermon is I want to talk about a town called Antioch. I'm talking about this town for a couple of reasons. Number one, it is the first town where 
um, the Gentiles started joining in the blessings of the church. It's where Gentiles first started joining the church, and so they were kind of on the forefront of this idea of, of the nations sharing in the blessing of Jesus. Second of all, this is where uh, Paul cut his teeth as a church leader. This is where he got his start, really. And number three is that our VBS this year is about Antioch. And so we're going to be taking the kids through the city where the church really first started engaging with the Gentiles, and they get to experience um, the, you know, what that was about. And one of the really cool things is it wasn't led by an apostle. It just happened as the church was being the church. And the apostles came in and, and learned from it and participated in it. But it just started from Christians being Christians. But I want us to understand what was going on in these houses, in these churches, uh, that were being given these instructions by Paul. So here's Antioch. It's in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean. It's an important town because it's at a crossroads. And, um, and it's a small town. It's a, it's a city, but it's small. Here's a map. It is two square miles. Okay? For a point of reference, Turner is 1.45 square miles. So it's about a third again the size of Turner. Thriving metropolis that it is. Anyone want to guess how many people lived in Antioch? 412? Okay. No. <laughs> Missed it by that much. Any other guesses? Five, what? Oh, come on. A hundred? No, no. But now it's going to be less impressive when I say 150,000. 150,000 people lived in a two-square-mile city. Uh, Salem is um, 125,000. Or sorry, no, 175. So it's almost the population of Salem living in a town just a little bigger than Turner, okay? How many of you feel like, like Portland is crowded? Co too crowded for you, okay? Portland averages seven people per acre, okay? Seven people per acre. Uh, oh, oh, where? Oh, no, the, oh, there it is, okay. Um, Chicago is 21 residents per acre, San Francisco is 23. New York City as a whole averages 37 people per acre. Now, Manhattan Island itself, if you separate that out, 100 people per acre. What is Manhattan Island covered in? Skyscrapers. Antioch, 117 people per acre. In the city of Antioch, for every one house, they had 26 blocks of apartments with no plumbing, no building codes. It was a regular thing where buildings would just fall down. That's why they sold the upper levels to the poorest people. Because they had the farthest to get out if things started falling apart. Right? It was an insanely crowded city. In fact, they had, in, in the Roman Empire, they had to pass laws to make sure that, that streets stayed at least nine feet wide. Um, Antioch was famous for having a huge luxury. Anybody been to Salt Lake City and seen how massive, their, uh, wide, and luxuriant their roads are, right? Yeah. Antioch had the wide, luxuriant road in the Roman Empire. It was 30 feet wide. This place is crowded. So if you think when I tell you to love your neighbors that you have a lot of neighbors, yeah, these people had a lot of neighbors. And, and not just a lot of neighbors, but there was a lot of tension in those neighborhoods. Uh, Antioch had, was divided into 18 different ethnic enclaves. 
Um, an enclave is another word for uh, like a, a ghetto or a, a, an ethnic neighborhood. So Chinatown, Little Italy, they had 18 of those. And they were constantly fighting each other. And not only that, but if you lived in Antioch, you were in this super tight-knit group. Mortality rates were high. Life expectancy was 30 years. And uh, most, the, the only way that they could keep populate, the population the way it was was just how many people were immigrating to the city, which means that you had tons of first-generation city dwellers who didn't know anybody because they just moved there. And what happens when you have communities where people don't know each other? What? They fight. Another thing that happens when you don't know anybody, you don't know who to trust, crime. Crime rates were astronomical. It was actually, there was a parable or a saying that um, you were a fool if you went for a walk at night in Antioch without making a will. Okay? On top of that, that's just what it's like to live in this town. On top of that, this town went through a catastrophe every 15 years on average. And when I say catastrophe, I don't mean COVID. COVID was bad. COVID had some really bad consequences, but it was a first world level. Like, let me show you what I'm talking about when I say they went through catastrophes, okay? So they, they were conquered by enemies 11 times during the 600 years that Rome ruled over them. They were plundered and sacked, meaning everything was stolen out of the city, five of those times. They were unsuccessfully put under siege two more times. So they starved for a while, but managed to outlast them. Okay? The city was burned down as a result of enemy attack four times. There were citywide riots that destroyed major sections of the city six times. There were hundreds of earthquakes, only eight of which destroyed the entire city. But eight of them. There were three epidemics with mortality rates higher than 25%, and there were serious famines five times. If you average that out, that is a serious city-destroying catastrophe every 15 years. That's what it was like to live in these cities. And so, needless to say, ancient cities like Antioch were crowded and chaotic. And if the message that Paul brought was simply about where you go when you die, that's important. But you can imagine that these people had a lot more on their minds than just that. They were struggling just to make sure that that, they didn't go there today, right? And I want you to understand that context when you read the kinds of things that Paul said. Because in, in those cities, loving your neighbor was especially difficult, and it was revolutionary, the things that we take for granted because they've become part of our, just what our society accepts as what's right were revolutionary back then. We're in a day, we're, we live in a day and age where even the people who hate Christianity still actually base their morals on the teachings of Jesus. They just don't realize it because it's such a part of our culture. You heard that, that parable or the fable about um, an old fish meets two young fish and says, hey boys, how's the water? And then the two young fish say, what's water? They don't recognize what they're swimming in. They're too used to it, right? That's the way we are with this idea of loving your neighbor. Like we just kind of take it on a very, we, you know, we dumb it down. We make it very a low bar, but we take it for granted. But in a place like this, like Antioch, think about what it would have been like to have someone come in and say, for the first time ever in human history, something like this. 
Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, city, and slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In a city divided into 18 ethnic enclaves that are constantly fighting each other, how powerful would a message like that be? What else would there be to give them common purpose to draw them together other than loyalty to Jesus? What Paul is preaching is not just something that sounds nice like it is to us, but it's something that would fundamentally transform their city. It would fundamentally transform their relationships. It would create hope where previously there was only fear. In Ephesians, Paul says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And what I want you to see as I continue this passage is how much, what kind of role would the personal transformation of the believer play in the power of the gospel in these towns? The change it can create in people, how powerful would that be? If, people, if it created people like this. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as as in Christ God forgave you. What kind of transformation would that create as suddenly there were people like that living in these cities? Well, I can tell you it's a matter of historical record that it completely changed the world. And by loving their neighbors, Christians changed the Roman Empire forever. What we find, uh, if, if you haven't heard me say this before, historically, uh, there is no evidence of an evangelist preaching a sermon that converted a large number of people convert completely from one religion to another ever in history. Preachers can, can preach a revival message that gets people to be rededicated to the God they already believe in, but conversion actually happens through the interactions of people loving each other. That is what actually changes lives. So you'll notice there, it wasn't an apostle who started the movement in Antioch that brings the Gentiles into the church. It was regular people loving their neighbors. And I'll give you one example of the power of this. One example it has to do with plagues. Okay, so Roman standard pagan policy when a plague happens is to get out as fast as you can. You run. You lock the door behind you if there's someone sick in your family because you want them to stay. And you just leave and you hope that they go in, you know, that they die of the illness before they starve to death. But you leave. You abandon everyone and you get out. The only people who stayed were the Christians who were dedicated to loving their neighbors. And here's the interesting thing. Doctors will tell you that basic care, not even counting as medical care, but basic care, 
bringing people water and food, helping, you know, taking care of them, will increase your odds, will triple your odds of surviving an illness like a plague. That means that for people who didn't know Christians, a plague would, be 30, would wipe out 30% of the, of the people who didn't know Christians. It would wipe out 10% of the Christians and the people who knew Christians. One of, the, one of the historical factors in the growth of the church is that every time a plague went through, afterward, Christians and people who had a positive impression of Christians were a higher percentage of the city's population. Just because they were loving each other and taking care of each other, and afterward, a whole bunch of people had a reason to believe what the Christians were saying and had a reason to believe that the world could be better than it currently was. Just by sticking around and caring for people. Now, I say just by. I mean, there were Christians who died who would have lived if they had left. You know, people caught the plague from caring for each other. It was a sacrifice. It mattered. And it, it, it was one of the ways that we transformed our world. We have hospitals because the church founded them in order to love their neighbors. We have colleges, we have schools, because, the, because Christians founded them in order to train people to read scripture and to better love their neighbors. So many things that we take for granted, granted happen because, our, because Christians were dedicated to loving their neighbors. And our world is completely different now because of it. So here's your place in the, in the mission. I am going to today tell you your personal role and God's personal plan for your life. Okay, you ready? Every single one of you, I'm going to give you God's personal, private, like, like specific to you, God's plan for your life. Let's start with overall, following Christ is not obeying, about obeying laws, but pursuing a mission. We do, obey, we do obey Jesus, but it's because he's directing us on a mission. It's not because being a Christian is just a matter of being a law-abiding citizen. Right? Our, we don't expect our government to be on a mission. We expect our government to make it so we can all pick our own mission. And so you're a law-abiding citizen so that everybody can get along and pick their own mission. Jesus calls us to a mission. So if you are following him, you're following him because he's going somewhere. Right? And the place that he's going, the mission that we're on, is to restore the blessings of God to the world. That is the mission of the church. So here, I'm going to give you each your personalized Mission. Ready? Your part of the mission is to love your neighbor. And loving your neighbor is the purest way to fulfill the mission God has given you because who determines who your neighbors are? You don't. Right? God determines who ends up in your sphere. And the best way for us to make sure that we're not following our own agenda is to love whoever God brings around us. So God saved you so that you could be a pocket of his kingdom in the world. And that people who come into your sphere of influence are entering into God's kingdom. They get to experience it. And they get to be won over by it. And they get to become a pocket of God's kingdom. But we have to remember that the church is not a pyramid scheme. A pyramid scheme is a business that makes money just by getting people to invest in it, but they never produce anything. And sometimes as a Christian, I felt like I was part of a pyramid scheme where my job is to get in and then turn around and get other people in, but we never actually do anything once we're in. But what we do once we're in is we build the kingdom of God. God builds the kingdom through us. So that's the mission that you have. Now I'm going to give you two pieces, uh, two challenges as a part of that. Number one, you've already had is uh, learn your neighbor's names. We have these magnets by the front doors. 
Grab one, put it on your fridge, and choose your, your eight closest domiciles where people live. Learn their names. That's job number one. Casey and I could do about half of this when we got it. It's cold outside, so we haven't actually met, seen any of our other neighbors and haven't gotten a chance to fill out more of it. But that's challenge number one. Challenge number two is I want you to be thinking, what are the issues in our community? As I talked about the issues in Antioch and the challenges they had, each one of those challenges was something that the gospel spoke to, something that Christians could address through the kingdom of God. So the question is, what are the issues in your community? Whether that's Turner or Almsville or Salem or wherever you live, what, what do you, the real-life concrete things that are going on. If it's the crime rate, then knowing your neighbors affects the crime rate. We've talked about that. Whatever it is. And the second question is, how can the gospel answer them? What I, mean by, what I mean by that is, how can us living the way God calls us to live and living out the truth of the gospel address those needs? I want you to be thinking about that. Because the power that a community of God has to affect their, their, their world is bound only by our willingness to obey and God's plans for our community. You believe that? Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful that you have called us to this mission. Father, we, we are at times overwhelmed by what you call us to do. Love our neighbors seems such a simple thing, and it is such a big thing, and it is a hard thing. And yet your son gives us the ability to be your people and to love our neighbors. I thank you for this church, this community that gathers together to encourage each other and to equip each other and to journey together. I pray that you would remind all of us every day of the mission that we are on, which is not simply to be a law-abiding citizen who keeps to themselves, but to be in motion building your kingdom and bringing your love into the world. We pray that you would give us opportunities to demonstrate your love to those around us, to build your kingdom in the relationships that we have around us. Give us eyes to recognize who our neighbors are, whether they're the people who live next to us or work next to us or the people that you just keep bringing into our area that we, we can't figure out why. Father, we pray that you would guide us and equip us to love our neighbors the way you love them, and the way you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you to stand, if you are able, as we sing our final song.